0: It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state-of-the-art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs by the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And boxer2valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Greetings again, everybody. Today, we're here to talk with Marc Francois and his passion for vintage vehicle restoration and his focus on the BMW R90s. Mark has completed 12 R90s restorations since being introduced to the model back in 2013. His research, attention to detail, and interest in the 90s is arguably unsurpassed. Recently, one of his restorations reached a record hammer price on Bring a Trailer. We'll discuss that and all things R90s this week. Here he is, Marc Francois, on the Airhead 247 Podcast. Okay, we're on the line with Marc Francois. And Mark, thanks for taking some time to visit with us on the Airhead 247 podcast. Really appreciate it.
1: Oh, my pleasure. I'm uh, I'm happy to be here and and thanks for having me. First thing I want to
0: talk with you about is recently you had a bike uh, sell on Bring a Trailer. And I just want to get your overall experience with that. Tell me about How that went and why you ended up going there. I think this is the first time uh, you've sold a bike on there, if I'm not correct.
1: That that is correct, Darren. I I typically have uh, bikes consigned. You know, people either through uh, word of mouth or through my Instagram account will uh, find me and say, hey, I'd like you to, you know, do a build for me. Um, And so generally that's the way it's happened. The bike that was recently on bring a trailer was a little bit different because it was not a bike that was consigned to anyone. It was actually my own bike um, that I built for myself uh, in 2019, 2018 and 2019 to uh, be competitive at uh, some some very nice motorcycle events like the La Jolla Concorde Allegance and the Quail Motorcycle Gathering. Um, but I found that after a few years of ownership of that bike, um, I was pretty loath to take it out and ride it because, you know, I'm I'm sort of patina adverse when something has been completely restored. Um, and at the same time, I needed some space in the garage for some cores that I have that are going to get restored. And so, um, and then uh, last year, about this time, I had successfully sold a 1965 Corvette on Bring a Trailer. So. All of those angles aligned and, and decided that uh, I would actually try to uh, throw it out and bring a trailer and see what happened. And, and it was a very successful auction.
0: It was. A lot of great comments on there, and I assume you were pretty happy with the final hammer price. One thing I want to ask you on this is, uh, and let's just say this on the front end, the r 90s you recently sold, is not the typical R90s. Let's just be clear about that. As you said, it's a uh, thousand-point restoration, whatever terms you want to use. This, this isn't your typical uh, R90s that comes up for sale uh, on a on a forum or something like that. That being said, I'm wondering, in your estimation, having worked with these motorcycles for a number of years, being a, uh, an aficionado of bikes and cars, do you see a sale price or a hammer price like that affecting the overall market value of other R9DSs, say rider examples or original paint examples, or is it just a, a one-time outlier?
1: Well, I think it's a little of both. I think uh, that was a special bike, like you said, and um, and I don't know about a thousand point, but I would I would certainly call that uh you know, a very top-notch restoration compared to other motorcycles out there. Uh, I, when I restore, I try to restore as close to the factory standard as possible. And even though I know that the the paint jobs we're doing are, are far more elegant and superior than what the factory originally did, I do try to be. You know, I do try to honor the original factory finishes with plating and you know painting and and that. And this comes a lot from my days restoring Corvettes is that you want to reproduce even the factory blemishes, you know, so to speak. Um, so that was, uh, you know, that. Yeah, I do think it's going to affect the market price. Um, that's both good and bad. I think market has, the market has already been going up for these bikes. They're, as you know, quite iconic and historically significant. Um, they have been labeled by many uh, including Ian Falloon, who has the uh, R90S book, as one of the BMW's most significant post-war bikes. Um, so they've been going up. They've been collectible um, over the last number of years that I've been doing this. Um, the cost of the cores that I've been buying steadily increase. And I imagine the uh, the visibility that the most recent sale I had uh, – uh, We'll, we'll tend to drive up core prices and everything from, you know, that to riders as well. So, you know, it's just kind of the way it goes. Do I think that's repeatable? I, I, it really just depends on who's in the market for a bike, you know,
0: so. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, there is predictably, I see two, when an, when an auction like this happens, there are two sort of predictable reactions I see from people, Uh, who may have, quote unquote, a a problem or issue with it. And let me be clear, I'm I'm not one of those guys, but uh, at all, I just want to be clear, but I wouldn't be doing my job if I wasn't asking questions and inquiring about things that I hear other folks talk about. So, um, you know, as far as the market price, you mentioned that, yeah, maybe it's bumping it up a little bit. What do you say to folks who say, you know, this is putting rider bikes or as you call them core bikes out of reach for the casual hobbyist?
1: Well, you know, it's it's a it's a tough play, but I mean, any anybody who wants to uh, get into the collector market, I mean, you talk, you could ask the same kind of question to the guys you know are buying Porsches, right? I mean, they've just been doing ridiculous, you know, things lately. Um, it's a, it's a it's an entry price, and oftentimes you'll find that uh, you know the market goes up and the market comes down. A lot of it has to do with you know the economic uh, status of the country. Um, a lot of it has to do with one particular individual's desire to have the bike. For for example, my bike uh, was sold to a, a collector, but he also owns. Uh, a number of car dealerships brand new car dealerships and two of them are bmw and his intent was to put this on the showroom floor of his bmw dealership so and you know for him that adds value When people come in they want to see something really cool on the showroom and that i think helps facilitate you know sales within the within the dealership i think something unique vintage and cool on the showroom floor
0: yeah well that's an excellent point Excellent point. All right, let's move on. Uh, as I said, I, you know, I wanted to ask a few of those questions uh, again because I, you know, you see the chitter chatter on in some of the uh, auction listings on occasion, uh, and you know, some other internet forums. Oh, and one other thing I wanted to mention about that is before we go on, uh, another common comment I see is you know somebody will predictably chime in, oh, well, looks like I need to clean mine up and sell it now, you know, when they see a big hammer price for this. And, you know, it just makes me kind of roll my eyes quietly when I read that. Uh, what's your take on comments
1: like that? Uh, you got to love supply and demand. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, there <he> right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's that's a classic, you know, supply and demand equation. Um, and I think that's fine. I mean, and you know, when you start looking at that, if more people did that, then it, it's going to enhance the hobby for everyone. For those who already have bikes, that might help the price. But it also brings out the visibility of the mark and the particular model of the R90S to everybody. There's there's probably a lot of people out there who are and I'll, and, and I'm when I say a lot of people, I'm mentioning. Serious collectors that don't have an R90S in their collection, and you know anybody who has a large and serious collection of arm, of, BM, of motorcycles, not just BMWs, but you know should have an R90S in that collection if they want to, you know, capture the essence of the 70s. So
0: yeah, oh, I agree. I, I agree wholeheartedly with you on that. Yeah. All right, let's uh, talk a little bit about just airheads in general, uh, and. Go back maybe to the beginning for you. Oh, we don't need to go through your whole sort of motorcycle history and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but what, in general, what was your sort of introduction to airheads, and then how did the R90s find the sweet spot in your heart?
1: You know, serendipity—that's all I can say. I when at my last uh, my last job before I retired in 2013, um, there was a guy there. Uh, who was really into BMW motorcycles. And I had mentioned that um, when I retired, I wanted to do a motorcycle project and he said, you should consider, you know, a BMW. And I didn't know anything about BMWs. And I asked him what kind of models people, you know, really wanted. And he says, well, pay attention. If you can find something called an R90s, that's what you want to buy. So, and when I, uh, Retired, went on to uh, I went on to online eBay and started looking at German bikes, Japanese bikes, British, Italian, you know, vintage bikes to to buy. And lo and behold, on the in the German section was uh, an R90S. And uh, and so I ended up buying that, and that's how it all started. I it, re, it really was just you know, I didn't know anything about them back then, and. It was lucky to find one right in front of me the first time I looked, and as I started researching it and looking at the uh, at the bike, its status and history, you know, as a you know historic significance, um, I realized and and the beautiful paint jobs that they had. I thought, yeah, this is this is for me. So I bought that first one. I restored it. Um, Sold it for a ridiculously low amount of money, (laughs) pretty much broke even, but uh, felt that I had done something that I wanted to do, which was take a very nice old machine and put it back on the road for somebody to enjoy. And that's how it started.
0: Wow. So that's not the answer I expected. Generally speaking, uh, when you see a bike like yours, that's going to be produced and restored by somebody who's got years of experience uh, with that particular marquee or brand. But uh, I think it's safe to say here, you had, obviously, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, you had previous experience in restoration work uh, doing Corvettes, as you mentioned, correct?
1: That's right. Yeah. yeah, For I started restoring Corvettes to one degree or another uh, back in 1995, and I've owned probably a dozen different 1965 Corvettes specializing only in 65 Corvettes, which is a familiar theme with, you know, me specializing only in an R90s. I don't try to, you know, branch out and do a lot of different things. I try to get very good at one thing. So, um, you know, I think a lot of it is just, you know, continued research and refinement. I probably spent more time studying the R90s than anybody I know because that's all I do. And, you know, it doesn't take, a whole lot of years for someone to become very versed on what's correct, what's not correct, you know, on these bikes. So even though I've only been doing this uh, since 2013, um, I've actually owned and titled with the state of California 20 R90S's and have completely restored 12 of them.
0: Wow. So. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask you how many you had done uh, a little bit later, but uh, 12 is the number. I, so it, let's go back to 2013 then you get that you get this first bike. Uh, tell me your impressions of just getting your hands on it uh, and sort of understanding the German philosophy, the build quality compared to what you were doing with Corvette Corvettes. What sort of things were you uh, making notes of and saying, wow, you know this is unique or different compared to what uh, I've been doing previously.
1: Well, obviously, it's an air-cooled engine versus water-cooled, you know, V8 a twin versus a V8. But there was just, um, to be honest with you, I didn't really start to understand the quality of the machine um, until I got further down the road with these. The bike I ended up buying in 2013 had already had engine work done to it, and I was. It's one of those things you're, you're you're praying that when you buy the bike and it's delivered to you that it doesn't blow up, you know, because you really don't know what you're doing, you know, in terms of how you can you know fix anything that goes wrong. Today, by contrast, I, I buy a bike and I don't care if it's running or not because I know I know pretty much I can fix anything on these things. So uh, there was a there was a bit of angst there, but. Um, a lot of it is just looking at the bike and saying, you know, oh, were, those, were those pinstripes, you know, from the factory? Or, you know, what was a standard hardware or this and that? Um, that also took an awful long time to learn in the Corvette hobby. So it, it's like anything else. I think Einstein said if you study something 15 minutes a day for six months, you'll be an expert.
0: Yeah, or, uh, or the 10,000-hour theory. Uh, take your pick there. Yeah. Um, yeah,
1: and I've I, I probably checked both of those boxes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it shows. It, re, it really shows in the, in the bikes uh, that you've done. So you mentioned you've done 12 uh, so far to date. Um, you, you use the term core bike um, as meaning, you know, a bike you're going to look for it, uh, to restore. Uh, what is uh, an ideal restoration candidate bike? I, I mean, I think I can answer that question. For you, it's going to be the most complete bike possible as far as parts go. Not necessarily condition of those parts. Is that an accurate statement?
1: Yeah, and then add in one other other uh, parameter, and that's price. Yeah. So I see I see these things all over. I have purchased uh, I purchased a bike out of a, back, a bike that was laying in a backyard for 25 years in Bakersfield, California. <laughs> not, not on a stand, laying on its side with, you know, with, with the scarecrow effect. Well, he took my legs and threw them over there, and he took my <laughs> arms and threw them over there. <laughs> you know, so you're, you're looking through the mud and the dirt, you know, trying to you know, find all the parts you can. And I've also had bikes. Uh, I actually purchased two bikes last summer. Because I needed some cores, and they're both remarkably complete bikes, both running bikes, and those are those are my least favorite to buy in terms of uh, running and all an that good stuff. Because the price obviously is quite you know quite a bit higher than you know a, a, a bike that's a basket case. The interestingly, the uh, the bike that I had the awards on that I just sold. Um, a motorcycle shop um, in Georgia contacted me one day saying that they had just uh, cleared out all of the motorcycles from uh, an estate sale. and one of them was an R90s and I periodically run ads you know in various publications looking for R90ss and they contacted me on that ad and said that the owner at one point, wanted to restore the bike and so the bike was completely taken apart and he had actually started to sand down the frame and then just stopped and uh the bike that they that i bought from him was all was laid out on a on a garage floor to show me what parts were there and <laughs> it was shipped to me in a large fedex box <laughs> on a pallet
0: is that um one that i might have seen on an old archived ebay listing
1: I, it was not on an eBay listing, as okay. far as I know, okay. but yeah. I did have I did have the photos in the uh, of how I bought it in the bring a trailer ad.
0: yeah, I think so, when yeah. I was when I was uh, trying to get in contact with you, i found I think I found an old eBay listing for a bike you sold. and um it was interesting to note, yeah, as you described uh, that other particular bike there. Uh, some of the photos, yeah, just basically showed a pile—I don't want to say a pile, but uh, uh, parts laid out on the ground uh, in no reasonable state of assembly at all.
1: None, none. So you just you pick over the photos and you go carefully and you're, you're zooming in and looking, you know, for what what's there, what's not. So it's a it's a lot of fun, but again, I. I don't mind buying them that way because I'm not paying for, for example, an exhaust system that I'm not going to use. You know, I don't, and I don't really want to have a ton of used parts around here all the time. So a lot of times I'm calling up my airhead friends and just saying, come get them. They're free.
0: Oh, wow. Well, can I get on that list? <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> One of the reasons so many airheads are still on the road today is because of great parts suppliers and enthusiasts like Boxer 2 Valve. William and Edward Plam at Boxer 2 Valve have years of experience with the 247 airhead, dating back to their first repair shop and dealership in the early 1980s. Boxer 2 Valve stocks and sources only premium parts and tools, so no need to worry if you're getting a cheap pattern or shortcut part. They simply don't carry them. Boxer 2 Valve has extensively researched which parts are correct for your motorcycle. Just enter your year and model, and you'll see only the parts that fit your bike. That takes the guesswork out of the ordering process. Real time stock information that is also available, so no need to guess what may be on back order that could delay your project. Also, if you're digging into a repair for the first time, be sure to check out Boxer Two Valve's video repair series. These cover both twin shock and post-81 models and are great tutorials that go step-by-step through a variety of repairs and parts replacement procedures. The video series is a great workshop companion, one I've used many times over the years. So for all your Airhead parts needs, Boxer2valve.com. That's the number two. Boxer2valve.com. That's great.
1: No, they're it's just they're just they're just uh, they're just parts that would keep your bike rolling rather than you know, <laughs> best races, so Yeah, yeah. But Anyway, I recognize now that cores are getting more and more, uh, more and more expensive, and you know, and if I want to stay in this business why uh, actually and I that's the wrong word to be using because I've never called it a business it's yeah. a hobby of mine um, if I want to continue with the hobby I have to probably step up and start buying nicer bikes but then I I real then I get into the the conflict of you know do I want to restore this bike because it's a bike that's completely you know got all of its parts there and it's got paint and it's decent paint for a rider is it it's almost criminal to think about taking it apart and restoring it. So it's it's challenging, you know, mentally on what exactly I want to do. And I'm facing that right now with a, a, a 76 that I've just moved over to the uh, restoration side of my garage. Um, it's 100 almost 100% complete. The only thing it didn't have, it had uh, Bing carburetors on it for all the crazy things. You know why that was, I don't know. But um, I have an extra set of carburetors, so it's not an issue. But all, all that, it's all, all complete.
0: So, I mean, is that something you might consider then uh, doing uh, what might be called a, a recommissioning or a sympathetic, sympathetic or mechanical restoration where you keep the original parts on the bike but just get everything back up to working spec? Or is it always going to be for you, uh, you know, down to the frame, build back up?
1: a challenging question. I, I, think I, I tend to gravitate towards the latter. Yeah. Um, you know, a complete, you know, restoration, um, a rider makes a lot of people happy. Um, but I'm not in the business of just turning the bikes around. And, you know, when I, when I find them and there isn't really, you know, I can't add any value doing that because, you know, I, I probably wouldn't get much more if anything, what I paid for it. So there's, there's plenty of people out there that want them, you know, just showroom pristine. And so I, th- I think that's where I gravitate to. There's, yeah. a, there's another way to do it is, is to not, uh, not take the parts, not take the painted parts on the bike. Um, but have a, have another set of tins painted that, that can go to the bike.
0: Yeah. That makes and a lot of sense. That,
1: yeah, and but then you then the purists get into like me get into well, gee, that means that the dates on the parts might not match the build of the bike, and it was interesting that at that particular item came up on my Bring a Trailer auction, but not not directly on Bring a Trailer, but through I guess there's a, a forum, an R90S forum on Facebook, and uh, which I'm not on Facebook, but a friend of mine was monitoring it and there was questions on whether or not you know the battery side panel had the correct date.
0: <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, and of it, yeah, of I, I agree. That yeah. I mean that can be a little bit nitpicky, but again, you know, I, some of that stuff w- let's just be honest, if you're on a inter- on the internet, you know, somebody's intent or uh, meaning behind a question or a comment, it's it's not clear. And it may just be kind of an innocuous conversation point, or it could be somebody just being ridiculously uh, persnickety about some details that may or may not really be of any consequence. It's, that's hard to say.
1: Um, yeah, all of the above. And it could be that they're just looking at, they think a, a, a side cover should be uh, a certain way, the, the right side cover, battery cover on the R90S came in two flavors. There was one that was straight across from '74 through most of '75, and sometime in early '76, the they made a they put a notch in the side cover so you could access the top subframe bolt without taking the side cover off. Yep. And uh, someone out there this believed that that was incorrect for '76. And so I went through, you know, an hour's worth of work showing him that the side covers that were on the bike had the correct date, The uh, and I showed him another half a dozen side covers that I have that have a notch in them that have either a late 75 casting date on them or an early 76 casting date. So, And it's clear, it's very clear to me, having had so many bikes that, uh, you know, I just know that... <laughs> Notched side covers are a real thing in 76 just as, you know, uh, aluminum BMW badges that go on the tank and the rear seat cow are. You know, there's another another item that came up was, gee, that bike should have enamel badges. Well, you know, okay, maybe, but my experience says that uh, bikes came both ways in all three, all three years. I had a I bought an original 74 from the estate of an original owner. Um, the bike was incredibly tired, and it was a March seventy four build, and it had aluminum badges on it. So, end of that story.
0: And it was uh, that was an original uh, paint and, and badges on there then, huh? Oh yeah, everything. Interesting. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. So I made some notes here um, about a lot of the sort of you know one year part uh, anomalies, uh, you know, the badges are a great example there. I have a 75, uh, Daytona orange. That's an original paint. It was built in January of 75 and it does not have the aluminum badges. Uh, and so when, and I did, uh, I did what I call, you know, a, a uh, mechanical refreshing on it a couple years after I bought it, and one thing I was finding was, and I I know you've come across this, and I was that's why I was really looking forward to chatting with you about this. Was, of course, we all know during the production run parts were updated uh, and changed uh, throughout those uh, three to four years that they that they made the motorcycles. Two things that, and there's a lot we can talk about here. Two of them that sort of uh, grabbed me by mistake uh, were the flywheel bolts and the neutral switch. And the reason that happened to me was I was using the Max BMW parts fish and parenthetically, thank you, Max. This is uh, not a, uh, I'm not putting your parts fish down, but Uh, A lot of times they'll show a line of people, by the way. Oh, yeah. They're great. And I want to talk about their bike that they did a few years back, too. But uh, they'll show a lot of times a line of demarcation as 975, September 75, as when a lot of parts were changed over. Now, as you mentioned with the tank badges and the seat cow badge, that is not a hard working date. Uh, I noticed the two things I had on mine, I was expecting to have uh, the longer, thinner flywheel bolts, and also I was expecting to have the earlier model neutral switch. So I ordered those parts because my bike was a January 75, uh, and lo and behold, those were not the right ones. So uh, I don't know that somebody may have been in there before, but it was a pretty low mileage bike under, you know, under 30,000 miles. So there are, tell me, uh, th- those are just a couple examples i run into there. You mentioned the tank badges. Uh, there's a lot of other ones uh, in there, too, that you really have to, to kind of keep your eye out for. Let me start asking with uh, the 73 and 74 models uh, especially, uh, of course, those are going to be in the, in the, uh, silver smoke. Uh, have you done one of those and talk about maybe the difficulty in finding some particular parts, uh, for those bikes?
1: Uh, I've actually done two 74s completely restored and have, <laughs> just as a funny aside, I, uh, I have, but after my first 74, I swore that I would never do another 74 <laughs> and, after the second seventy four I swore that I would never do another seventy four and i think I mean it this time and it's <laughs> only be only because um exactly what you say there's a there's a very i once compiled a list of all the unique features of a seventy four r nine e s and it's fairly long and a lot of you know being a one year only batch of parts it's uh it's sort of two edges on the on the sword it's on the one hand, it's a very difficult restoration because they, you don't, a lot of the parts just, you have to wait until they come up if you need them. And the other side of it is, to me, it makes the 74R90S the most beautiful of the three years. The, uh, it's very unique, um, very special. Uh, but what I find in the marketplace right now is that the appreciation for the 74s fairly low, um, which surprises me when you think about the most valuable nine eleven Porsches are the ones from nineteen sixty five, which is their first year nine eleven. So I over over time I expect the seventy four R 90s to overtake all the you know, the seventy five and seventy six in terms of value. So having said that, I probably have just priced myself out of <laughs> a third 74 or 90s, yes. but that's just my expectation over time because it is so unique. And um, when you deal, I only deal in U.S. spec bikes. I don't buy uh, ECU bikes, which carry a different uh, serial number sequence right. versus the U.S. specs. And the U.S. spec bike for a 74 is is the rarest of them all, as they only made a thousand five of them.
0: Oh, okay. I, I didn't know the production numbers were that low. Um, yeah. Well, one thing I wanted 1, to 1, add. Five. Yeah, wow. Okay. I wanted to ask you about uh, the DeLordo carbs um, on the R90S, especially uh, the f- early, early models. I've read a few things and heard a few people mention this, but I never knew this to be the case. And I might have glossed over it in the Ian Falloon book. But uh, some of the early DeLordo uh, carbs on the first models were that those did not have chokes and they had uh, tickler chokes on there, is that right?
1: That, I can't completely uh, confirm. I mean, that that is that is not my experience, um, but I've only owned, you know, I've, own, I've owned three uh, 74R90S's, two I've restored. Um, one was an ECU bike and it was an early bike, I believe it was a November, if I'm thinking right, a November 73 build. And uh, it had, you know, its carburetors had uh, the standard choke mechanism.
2: Okay. All
1: right. Magara choke. So I have not yet ever come across uh, an R90S with uh, ticklers on it. I know they're out there. I know they exist. And I know that some people have converted them uh, in the past. But uh, I have not seen any from the factory like that. But that doesn't mean that I've seen it all by any stretch.
0: So on those 274s that you, that you did, what were some of the challenges on those, uh, maybe either finding parts uh, or, you know, some areas where you really might have been struggling or had to be patient uh, to get some of those aspects how you wanted it?
1: I would say that um, one of the issues was the uh, gold tape. You know, as you know, the 74, um, the majority of the bikes in 74 uh, were not striped with paint. They were striped with uh, gold tape. Or... So finding a tape that uh, was similar enough to be able to be used in terms of its gold color and its width uh, was a bit of a challenge. Um, I finally found some in China of all places, and uh, and that was only the first part of the battle. The second part of the battle was actually putting the tape down and getting it to stick. I went through you know all kinds of cleaning the tank with alcohol and heating the tank with a, a hair dryer and a, to uh, get the tape to stick a little bit better. You know, it was it was probably one of the more challenging features of that, um, and then. I was fortunate that the first R90S I had, that was uh, the 74 was, as I mentioned, it was a one owner estate, you know, purchase. Um, so I could look at all of the aspects of where the tape goes down, you know, where it's laid down on it. And, and, you know, and interestingly, when you look at a pinstriped 75 and 76 that actually has paint, the paint dives in and ends in a certain place. But when you have a, um a taped fairing, for example, or a taped gas tank, the tank, the tape doesn't dive into anything. It actually wraps around to the underside of the, whether it's the fairing or the uh, gas tank for support.
0: Yeah, it sort of disap- okay. disappears from the line of sight.
1: Well, yeah, and like on, on the lower part of the fairing down by where the, uh, the turn signals are, the tape down there dives and goes and wraps around to the inside of the fairing. So... There were just a lot of things like that. I I don't you know I think uh, the transmissions are, are a little uh, finicky on a seventy four. Um, the first time I took one apart, uh, figuring out how to uh, get the kicker the kickstarter uh, spring reloaded was you know an hours an hours worth of challenge, um, and and a fairly dangerous endeavor because <laughs> you try to. You try to wind this spring, and if you're not careful, that spring can unwind and and it'll take a pretty good gash out of your finger. Didn't happen, but it it, to me, but it uh, it could possibly do that.
0: Well, let me ask you too about that then. So, in in sticking with the the first year model, you mentioned the transmission, Uh, that is something that was changed uh, over the model year run uh, 75 and 76. It was you know, up, some of those parts were updated. I know some of the parts in the transmission, some of the shafts uh, and uh, maybe gear gears might not be available anymore. If you were doing an R another 74, uh, would you up and you couldn't find the parts uh, or, you know, maybe you had to wait for them or something or whatever, would you still go back and put in... The correct transmission parts for that, or would you update it uh, towards the the better version?
1: Well, first of all, the uh, the intermediate shaft—that's uh, what is I was no longer, yeah, yeah, it's it's no longer available from BMW. The other uh, the other gears are available, with the exception of fifth gear, which is a little bit different. It has a different ratio. Uh, today and so when you do that, you've got to change out the uh, the gear on the on the input shaft that will match that. So there's you know, as I recall, when I built that first seventy four transmission, I did have a problem. The uh, you've probably heard the adage in the airhead world is that only use your kickstarter when it's an emergency. <laughs>
2: That's right.
1: And and that is because the uh, the spur gear on the kicker. Um, rotates uh, a small gear that's on the input shaft, and that gear is super soft. And just using it ten times, you'll you'll create wear on that gear on the input shaft. And what happens is they get so worn that they stop making really good contact, and they start stripping out. And of course, there's two bad, obvious bad problems with that: you can't start the bike, and you, you're depositing, you know, metal debris in the uh, transmission. So I was lucky. I I had, a, there's a, a gentleman in uh, Montana, and his name is uh, Bob, and I forget his last name, but he's...
0: I want uh, to say it's Bob Cle- Clement or Clement.
1: Bob Clement. Yeah, yeah. I have his card right here, and he's been a very good mentor to me on building transmissions. So... Um, yeah, and so he actually helped me source an Nos uh, gear that goes on the uh, on the uh, on the input shaft. So I was pretty pretty pleased about that. But um, short of that, you know, you're in a dilemma. If you want to build the correct transmission for a '74, you can build it if the if the gear on the input shaft is completely worn. then you can you know it'll look correct from the outside you just you know you'll have to be disclosing to the to the customer never use the the kicker which i basically tell have told people when i I built the 74s don't use the kicker unless it's an emergency anyway so
0: since this program launched in march of 2022 we've heard from a number of you telling us how much you enjoy it so first off Thanks for tuning in and thanks for supporting us. To help continue our efforts here, we've partnered with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who coincidentally are also fans and supporters of this program. The MOA is conducting a membership drive over the next several months. Their goal to add 200 new members and to help them do that, we're offering a free one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 listeners. The membership includes discounts at hotels, their monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistance programs, and a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. To sign up, visit 247.bmwmoa.org, complete the online form, and use the activation code AIRHEAD247, or go to the description section in this podcast, we've popped a direct link right there. We want to say thank you to the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America and thank you to you for supporting our efforts here with the podcast, where we'll continue to bring you unique history and insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free membership, 247.BMWMOA.org. Use the activation code AIRHEAD247. Well, let me ask you or ask that question again. Then, so could you? Would you have conniption fits? Could you sleep at night if you had an up-updated transmission parts seventy six or something like that? Transmission parts in a seventy four transmission would that bother you?
1: Uh, if the if you know they're the same gears, no, not at all. I mean, it's i i've I've heard that the seventy four transmission was fairly weak compared to the five and six um, but honestly when I when you ride them around it's it's difficult to figure out where that weakness is whether it's shafts or gears or the aluminum case itself um, you know I, I couldn't tell you where that is but um, there isn't the gears off of a, a later model uh, should fit and work with the 74 as far as I know I could be wrong on that It's not something I've had to do at this point. And I've got a fairly good supply of shafts and gears, you know, as as backup in the the cupboard.
0: So that's something you probably wouldn't even have to worry about then. So, okay, fair enough. What about some other uh, components like that? Again, maybe sticking with the 74 as an example, there were a lot of things that were updated, as we know, through the model run that were, you know, improvements to the bike. But again, if you are doing 100% uh, correct restoration, you might not do those. So things like the breather valve, uh, needle bearings on the rocker arms, electronic ignition, uh, things like that, you're not going to be even considering those uh, when you're doing uh, a period correct restoration. Is that right? Yes.
1: Pretty much correct. Yeah, I mean, you want to. I want to take the bike to as close to the stock as possible. Um, you mentioned electronic ignition. I'm not familiar with any of these bikes having electronic ignition. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and typically, m- more often than not, um, when I buy a core, it has a Dyna two or a Dyna three yep. ignition system on it. I can't even tell you how many of those I have in the drawer. <laughs> I, <laughs> believe I, I, I believe go. it. I believe it. I convert the bike back to uh, back to stock. Um, another another uh, piece on the ignition is the dual plugging. I, I come across that a lot. I've I've found that um, a a, uh, a oil drain plug for a Jeep um, is a very good fit to the lower plug if you want to close that off, and it has such a low profile to the head. Of that drain plug, it won't interfere with uh, trying to access, uh, you know, the, the bolts that hold the head onto the cylinder.
0: No, oh, that's a, an interesting note. Good to know. Yeah. What are with? yeah you have, Go ahead.
1: You have to cut them down a little bit so they don't stick into the uh, into the cylinder. But uh, you know, it's basically just finding a fourteen by one twenty-five bolt that will sit and have a really low profile head to
0: it. Well, you bring up an interesting point there that I really hadn't thought about. Uh, you're mentioning some alterations, modifications that you're seeing on bikes uh, that you buy, your core bikes that you buy, and of course, a lot of these uh, were probably done in the in the mid to late '70s or, or later on. Uh, what other? I'm just curious. What other maybe sort of oddball things have you seen on some core bikes that you've bought?
1: It's very interesting. uh, That first 74 I bought that I mentioned was the estate of the original owner. It was actually purchased in Goleta, California at Reg Bridmore's shop back in 74. And as you know, Reg Bridmore was um, big in performance on these bikes. And so a a lot of, I have heard that a lot of bikes that went through Reg's shop, as they came back for maintenance, they were sort of regified with, you know, <laughs> enhancements. And the bike that I bought had a, uh, a Mark, it was called a Mark 10 B electronic ignition system on it, which I, uh, which I saved just for, just for giggles. It had a lot of, you know, it had, uh, an, a front oil cooler on it. It had an oil pressure, uh, gauge on it. Um, so I, I, you know, I see that. I see a lot of bikes with the, uh, the San Jose improvements on them. I've had, Uh, You know, especially with the front fork, uh, or the front uh, fork, lower fork uh, stabilizers, Um, upper triple trees that are, you know, real fat and thick, out of billet aluminum. I mean, it's just it's just all over the place. Uh, Coney shocks in the rear, which was another good update. Um, Bar in mirrors on these things. (laughs) List list goes on and on and on. But all that stuff comes off when I do a restoration.
0: Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And, you know, I guess it, 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 it goes to – it's a good thing to mention here that uh, since you're in California, you, know, you mentioned San Jose. Uh, I talked with a fellow uh, here recently called Mark Spitler, uh, who's also out in oh, California. Yeah, yeah. and um,
1: – one of, one of the most knowledgeable guys I know.
0: Yeah, yeah, we had a great chat and you know he was he was mentioning you know sort of guys from his era uh he's in his mid to late 70s now i guess but there was a you know the big hot rod culture in california back then you know really i guess all over but you know getting bikes california bikes from that era uh, a lot of those modifications you just mentioned there uh were really common for the day and um you I I think it's pretty neat now that you've probably got a whole as you're mentioning this, you know, stashes of parts, you know, from the <laughs> mid 70s and 80s that you're not using.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's building up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I can uh, imagine so. I even,
1: I even had a I the last 74 that I bought um was really interesting. I bought it from a gentleman in uh Ben Loman, California, and he was a second owner. He had uh, always wanted an R-90s, and uh, one day he was driving from Ben Lomond over to San Jose to his work, and on his way, he passed uh, a law office, and in the, in the lawn in front of the law office was this 1974 R-90s, and he stopped in and inquired about it. It was based on a divorce sale, and he ended up buying it, and this was, I think, uh, 1982. And proceeded to put over 210,000 miles on the bike. Um, just, just rode the heck out of the thing. Um, had some very funny stories of accidents. Um, but of all the strange things that I've seen on R90Ss that are aftermarket, he had a set of air horns on it that were <laughs> mounted to the uh, starter motor cover.
0: <laughs> oh, good grief. Yeah, I bet that yeah. made quite a racket, too.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, uh, I want to talk a little bit about parts, parts availability and, and sort of your preferences. Uh, you know, a lot of guys I've been talking to who've been working with these bikes for 20 or 30 years now are noticing, um, more and more and not surprisingly, uh, more and more parts are coming up NLA on the bmw uh, parts catalog a lot of things you know you're just yep. not able to find anymore uh, i recently right. recently bought a uh, 78 uh, gold 78 uh, r100 rs and the rear master cylinder uh, for the disc brake on that bike was uh, it had seen a lot better days uh, in a lot of areas um the mm-hmm. the worst part about it was the threads uh, where the hard brake line went in were pretty stripped and, uh, I thought, well, I could probably stand for a new one here, uh, or, you know, find another source. So sure enough, I get on, uh, max it's listed as available. Uh, it was kind of a ridiculous price. I think, as you can imagine, some things are, but, uh, I, to, yep. to make sure I called up the parts guy, called up the parts counter there at max and said, Hey, I'm looking at this, uh, before I, place my order. Can you double check and make sure this is still available? And sure enough, he said, well, sorry, it's not. And I'm going to go ahead and update our parts fish right now. So there's slowly but surely things are disappearing. Uh, But at the same time, uh, manufacturers like Sibenrock are Mm -hmm. slowly reintroducing parts, not necessarily for the R90S, but other airheads. And then there are a lot of great Used parts dealers, especially in Germany. rocks now offering parts. BMW, Bayer, B A Y E R. I might be mispronouncing that's another one. So tell me sort of about your experience with parts availability, maybe some that have been difficult to find uh, over the years or more recently. And then uh, if you are having to outsource, this is like a 30 point question here, but uh, and if you are having to use maybe a non BMW part, if you have to, what are they, and what's your preference there?
1: So, yeah, all of the above. Um, I've had, uh, I, I, you know, my builds, I start with a, a big, you know, I, I go over the bike, examine it, figure out, and I start making notes on what do I need. Um, and I place a very large order with, BM, with Max uh, BMW. And you're right, I've started noticing Things going away. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that to some degree, I'm responsible for part of the, uh, the in LA. NLA. Um, I did a uh, restoration on a '75 a number of years ago, and I was still able to buy hand uh, hella switch controls on the left and right. I was still able to buy the uh, the header pipes and the correct Zuna exhaust systems. Yep. So. Um, and, and, of course, all of that stuff is gone. Um, so as you as you pointed out, once you realize that uh, you're in L.A. on your most convenient source, then you branch out and you start getting creative. And I've been to BMW Bear. I've been to a number of other suppliers in, in Germany to to buy uh, um, S. Meyer is one. Yep. Uh, Steven Rock is another. Uh, to get what you need. And to the extent that you can't find that, then you, uh, reach, you know, for the eBay or whatever other market you have, your friends, I have a lot of friends, I have a friend who's got a couple of warehouses and parts. So you just, you start massaging it that way. And there are some parts that are just really hard to come by now. And, you know, the hell of switch controls are one of them, um, Horns on the uh, seventy-four and seventy-five horns are, are hard to come by. Is that you the one with
0: the them. with the chrome center piece?
1: Correct. And when I say hard to come by, it's hard to come by one that's in show quality. And so, more now, uh, I'm now resorting to taking horns apart and having the bells re-chromed.
0: Mm, interesting. So, yeah, let me make a comment on that real quick. Uh, the seventy-five I have uh, was a real is a really original bike. Uh, and it does have the chrome center horn, uh, but you know what? I hated the sound of it. Uh, it was terrible. It was the is wimpier of the two offerings, I guess. So, of course, I took it off and saved it and just bought either, you know, an earlier or later Model 1, I don't know, that was solid black, and it has that typical sort of horn sound you would expect uh, from a bike. But was that uh, – am I off there? Were those – uh those horns just wimpier sounding for some reason
1: not necessarily uh they had a bit of a different tone i would they say did. that yeah. a lot of people they had a lot of people would put a uh an upgrade would be an r1100r or rt or you know some horn on it they don't have the right shape and another right look and they're a little bit louder and, and brighter in their tone mm-hmm. um but one of the things you can try on the old airhead horns um, you know, more of the meat meat sound like a Volkswagen, Yeah, um, they have an adjustment screw on the back. So, oh, yeah, fly off that, Ply off the uh, little silicone cap or little silicone daub that's over that adjustment screw. And then you can, you can make very, very slight turns on that screw. And you can probably enhance the tone and bring it up in volume.
0: That's and right. I completely, I completely forgot about that. And um yeah i mean like i said i just didn't I, I didn't care for the sound of it and you know it was easy enough just to buy a secondhand horn for twenty dollars that had more of the what i thought was the classic sound um right. but, but getting back to well, you some,
1: haven't, go ahead you haven't lived until you have had a, a set of du, dual fiam horns on those things they oh, uh, man those are amazing
0: they are they i are have I've, yeah i've got those on the uh rs i bought and they're nearly deafening, especially when you've got the reverberation chamber of the uh, RS fairing going yeah. to work for you as well. Um, uh, when, when
1: you're riding around, that's what you want. But that, obviously, they're not—they're not correct. So
0: no. Uh, so, but anyway, getting back to some of these uh, NLA parts, and so have you? Um, I mean, have you used a non? original BMW part on a restoration just because you didn't have an o- another option?
1: Uh, let's see. Um,
0: and I, I'm trying to struggle what, with, with what it might be.
1: The answer is uh, probably yes, but I'm trying to remember what it might be. Um, so I, I typically, um, well, yeah, I use, I don't use the, I don't use Kolben-Schmidt pistons okay. on the bike. Um, I use uh, Dershner pistons out of Germany. Um, and, and why I do that is because it, you know, it's a more modern setup in terms of, of uh, reliability. Um, if you know anything about oil lands on a piston, a, a single-piece oil land is uh, inferior to a a more modern three piece system that has a better job does a better job of scraping the cylinder wall. So uh, I use those pistons, and and you get the benefit of reduced reciprocating mass. the uh, the piston, the rings, the wrist pin, the keepers um, of a versener system is one hundred and ninety six grams lighter per side mm. than the than the setup. So, it tends to make for a little bit smoother, you know, engine. Is it, is it stock? No, but I do think it's a much better system. And, you know, you just have less oil blow by, you, you know, you know, from these breather valves, you get a little bit of oil trickling down through the breather port into your right side suction funnel. And then that goes in and gets burned up in the carburetor, Yep. you know, so, or in the carburetor, delivered by the carburetor into the cylinder, so it's, it's just a little bit better, you know, setup for that. Um, so that's that would be one thing. Um, I don't use the – I'm using uh, kibble white uh, black diamond valves because I think they're a little bit uh, better and a little bit harder than the, uh, the stock valves from BMW. Um, but I use BMW guides. I use BMW uh, springs, you know, all factory standard stuff. Um might there be um, that's about all I can think of,
0: so more so internal you know engine components more so than anything else um have you yeah, I'm, I'm... go ahead go ahead I was gonna say, have you done a um do you always keep an iron bore cylinder or have you done any nickel sill conversions always iron, okay.
1: Iron bores on these bikes are unbelievable, and that's you know that, that I think I alluded to this earlier in the in the discussion that it took me a while from my I, I didn't know what I was looking at when I bought my first R90s, and, and over time I began to have a great appreciation for the quality of the materials that were used in these bikes versus say uh, a, a, a Honda of a 750 of the same you know generation. I'm, my, my dad passed away a couple of years ago, and I'm the recipient of his 1972 Honda CB750 that is 100% original. Oh, wow. Uh, with less than 20,000 miles on it. And I look at the quality of the chrome, the quality of the rubber components on the bike. I mean, it's just so different than a BMW. A BMW is a much higher quality product. I mean, you can take, you can take rubber parts that are 45 years old in there and, and clean them. And they're still pliable in your hand. Uh, Chrome will look like it's got some pitting or rust on it. And you can scrape that off with your fingernail, you know, not, not that that's how I do my restorations, but I'm just <laughs> yeah. making, making a generalization of the quality. And where I was leading with this is the iron linings in these bikes. Yeah. I have actually taken apart a cylinder and for kicks, I, uh, put a bore gauge to it, a cylinder that had 65,000 miles on it. I put a bore gauge to it to see if it would still be in spec on taper and out of round. And it was, how's that? That is an amazing testimonial to how well these bikes have been built and the quality of the materials.
0: Yeah, that's true. One thing, one last thing on the sort of parts availability and stuff, you mentioned the, the switches, uh, the handlebar switches and yeah, I've, you know, like you, obviously, you know, the ones on my bike are fine. I'm not doing restorations like you, but uh, admittedly, uh, when I see one come up, you know, I do have a second thought. Hey, you know, should I buy one and and stash this away in case, you know, uh, I have a failure? You know, one Change of those hard though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um,
1: my do my you... recommendation to you is that you do not. Um, because I will need to buy that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I hear you. Do you know? That's a good one. Do you know, um, has, do you know, has there been any talk? I, I guess what I'm trying to ask here is I wonder if Cybenrock or somebody is going to step up and start reproducing some of these, you know, more important NLA parts. Do you know of anybody that's talking about that? Any hubbub about Uh it or what?
1: I'm not, I do not know of anybody at this point in time. I am not personally doing that. I, I was, uh, I, I, I foresaw the shortage coming several years ago. So I purchased a head. Um, I actually have, uh, but I, but I, I don't have enough to, to keep me going forever. I've got, I think, six switches on the left side and I've got probably 14 on the right side. I was, uh, fortunate enough to find a supplier in uh, Greece that uh, the the Greek police used to ride around on these bikes all the time and there was all these parts stashes and a number of years ago uh, a guy I knew over there turned me on to someone who was selling uh, selling parts that were left over from the Greek police vehicles.
0: Wow interesting you never know where they'll where they'll pop up.
1: That's exactly right so um, but I think it'll happen. I mean, if you look at BMW mobile traditions, they've mm-hmm. been involved with this. Um, others have been involved with this. We're starting to see more and more um, parts, you know, come available. Uh, there's a fellow that's uh, a parts guy on eBay in uh, San Pedro, California. He just now started reproducing the unique handlebar clamps that have a little uh, oh yeah bright spears. Yep. So those are now being re- reproduced. Um, so we'll see. It, you know, that necessity is the mother of invention, as they say. So, as 100%. the need arises, we'll we'll start to see some of that. Hundred um, percent. People have said that they've contacted Hella. Um, Hella is the manufacturing manufacturer of the, the old uh, combination switches, and uh, Hella to this point apparently has not had interest in doing that. Um, but we'll see. I
0: mean. They had a hell of a time, medicine. a hell of a time getting Hella to to make them. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was a terrible pun. <laughs> yeah, that's <not> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and let me so. say this, you know, and to bring this sort of full circle, uh, you know, when we're seeing uh, bikes like yours uh, that are going uh, for good sale prices. The collectability factor continues uh, to stay strong. Uh, The sales prices uh, uh, overall continue to to stay strong. The appeal for the bikes to stay strong. I think all in all, that's going to mean at some point, somebody's going to jump in and and do this because they still see there's a need, a want, and a value uh, for these parts.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It It may be me too. I mean, depending on how much longer I go. And, you know, when I start running low on this or that, um, I have uh, friends in the industry who uh, are um, big restores. I think uh, Tim Stafford is another one of the mentors that I've had in this uh, area. He's uh, very big on uh, 1969 and earlier type restorations, but um, you now he's, he's definitely going to be in the market to, look at restoring our 90s. He's working on his first one uh, as we speak. It's a 1974 model. Um, he'll be taking that to the quail. Uh, calls me all the time for advice and you know, hey, how do you do this or how's that supposed to look or, you know, kind of a thing. So, but he has a lot of experience with uh, reaching out and getting things made, you know, whether it's in China or whether it's from a local person, you know. So I think... As the need arises, there's there's plenty of expertise out there that can get it done.
0: Let's talk about uh, the paint on these bikes. And I know we could probably go for hours and hours uh, you know on a number of different topics, but this is an important one to touch on. And you had mentioned right out of the gate um, <clears throat> the paint on your restorations. Uh, you're really happy with how those turn out. I have to say that's the first thing I notice, and I think anybody with a keen eye for these bikes notices is, if 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 the bike's been repainted, and it's been repainted wrong, that's the first thing you're going to see. If it's that's done, right. if if it's done correctly, that's the first thing you'll notice. So, right. um, <laughs> tell me about. Uh, I, I, you know, obviously you've done your research and you know about you know. Probably what was done in the past and how these bikes were done. What I'm really more concerned about is, for our conversation purposes, what makes an R90S paint job correct, both colors, and are and how are you accomplishing that?
1: Okay. Um, well, I I would say first of all, starting off, I mentioned I have titled 20 bikes in California, and a lot of those bikes have been one owner. Original condition, original paint bikes, and I've studied the paint jobs. I've photo documented the original paint jobs. Um, while no two are exactly the same, there is a very, you know, there's very much a theme that goes on to these bikes, and and so I I have that in my head when the when they get painted. I I don't actually do the painting myself because I'm not that you know good at with a paint gun um, but i have a real good painter and the way it works is that i let him get everything prepped and ready and he sprays the silver base coat um silver base coat down and when it comes time for the top coat coat whether it's silver smoke or daytona orange 100 percent of the time i manage how the margins are put down on that just because i'm very particular about it and that comes from a lot of experience seeing what uh, original bikes, you know, show.
0: So are you literally sort of behind, standing behind him in the paint booth?
1: Exactly. Inside the paint booth with a respirator on and talking with a garbled voice. (laughs) Yeah. And the, uh, you know, and, and the first part to that paint equation is using the correct paint. I can tell you that as soon as I see a bike on the on eBay, for example, or somewhere uh, an R90S for sale, whether it's smoke or orange, um, I can tell whether or not they used you know the, the gold standard paint. And there's only one source for gold standard paint, and and that is Kent Holt in Athens, Ohio. So he he is the man. He has formulated, you know. Silver Smoke and Daytona Orange. And they, and I, and I can tell you, without hesitation, I have put painted bikes next to uh, original paint bikes. And they're, the, the tones and the colors of his paints are indistinguishable.
0: So I know uh, Kent's slowed down a bit in the years. I know they're not really doing the dealership yep. anymore. And I don't know how much Correct. paint work he's doing does somebody have the uh nuclear codes to what he's done?
1: good question yeah um, you know I, I it's uh it's a concern yeah um i think I think he's still formulating. I talked to him maybe six months ago and, and purchased a court you know from him um, but you know there's uh <laughs> you know if he gets hit by a bus, we're all in We're all going to be back to the drawing board.
0: (laughs) I know. That's horrible to think. Uh, And let me say as a side note uh, of of interest, I've mentioned this before in a few other episodes, but uh, I went to school in Athens, Ohio, and uh, went to college at Ohio University. And you'd not be shocked to learn that that was my introduction to Airhead BMWs uh, was in Athens uh, because there were so many around. And the guys uh, at the dealership, Marvin uh, and Kent and his wife, uh, were really helpful to me uh, as a young kind of punk college student, you know, in my early 20s. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, they were just really helpful. Um, the mechanics there, you know, kind of gave me a break. I had a short wheelbase slash 5, 750 uh, that they sort of, you know, ner- helped me nurture it uh, to keep it running and the great, my, one of my greatest memories about that, uh, time was, uh, that when I was there, that was when the last of the, uh, airheads were, uh, being introduced, uh, the early nineties. So the R100Rs and stuff like that were coming out and they had demo bikes and I would, they would just let me ride them, which <laughs> was such a thrill, you know, for a 21 year old kid. And that just really, uh, cemented um, my love and passion for the bikes. So kudos to, to Kent and everybody out there uh, at Holt. Uh, but yeah, anyway, and back I, I, back to, the, go ahead. You want to say something?
1: Yeah. You know, I've, i it's a, it's a small world in this airhead, you know, world. I've spoke to Marvin several times. I've actually owned an R90S, a 74 that was actually owned by a Marvin at one time, Um. And I content, to this day, I own a bike that came out of, uh, a, I don't remember the name of the town, but it was right next to Athens, Ohio, and that bike is my rider in my uh, my home up north. I, my wife and I have a home in Southern California and Northern California, and I keep uh, a 1976 R90S Silver Smoke up there because the riding is just so much more pleasurable down in, than down in Southern California. And that bike was purchased from a gentleman named Larry Cam- Camity, uh, who was a professor at, I think, uh, Ohio State. And he was selling it for one of his friends. And the bike had been serviced, you know, at, at, uh, at Holt the whole time. So it's a, you know, there's so few of these bikes, it's not hard to imagine that there's a lot of, you know, The apple hasn't fallen very far from the airhead tree.
0: (laughs) No, no, that's a, that's a good way to, that's a good way to put it. So, well, yeah, again, I mean, and getting back to the paint, I mean, for me, um, that is really the, the iconic design point on the R90S uh, for me has always been the paint. Uh, Yes, it's got a better, you know, it's a better performing bike, you know, in, in all kinds of regards than the uh the slash five uh that was before it. Uh and you know, there were upgrades and refinements to the airhead line further mm-hmm. further on in the years, but it's for me it's always been that paint and that unique styling uh that's always been the calling card for me. And as I mentioned, the, the painter you're working with and uh what you've done, uh it's it's really it's really just amazing, um the, the yeah, paint does, the paint job. He jobs. does a very
1: good job. He's real good finish guy so you know we're we're probably taking more orange peel out of the paint than the factory did but you know so
0: do you do you care to give him a like plug that.
1: oh yeah no he's all over it's a uh, brad diaz over at speed zone auto paint in uh in santee california
0: and is he trip. is he staying busy with uh BMW I mean does he do other BMW paint uh, jobs as well aside from R90? Yeah. Obviously he does all kinds but uh
1: you know he ha- does, having he work- does everything he, yeah. He'll do he'll do vintage Kawasaki, new Kawasaki. He'll do uh, or I should say vintage uh, um, Harley Davidson and new Harley Davidson. Um, he has an Insta- Instagram account. It's speedzone_paint. Um but does a real nice job Has a professional booth. He does high-end Porsche cars. He does uh, Ferraris. I mean, and he does jet skis and boats. So he pretty much does it all.
0: Wow, Excellent. Uh, That's good to know. A
1: real t- he is a very talented painter and his, the, the day that, you know, so I, I mentioned his name in the, uh, bring a trailer ad and he said his, Phone was ringing off.
0: (laughs) I can imagine. I can imagine. That's great. One last thing I want to touch on uh, about paint, and then we'll uh, go go through a few more questions here. Um, uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. uh, I think I've noticed on my bike, which is a 75, a couple things. uh, And I was talking with Mark Spittler about this. I think it was uh, a few unique things I noticed. First off, when they're pinstriped. Uh, I've noticed there's a little signature from the pinstriper that's on the inside uh, right of the S fairing. There's a pinstripe signature on the inside left front part of the tank. And then I also noticed one uh, on the underside of the right uh, seat cowl. Uh, are those uh, generally where you'll find those if you're trying to figure out if you've got an original paint bike or if the parts haven't been replaced? Are those the three spots?
1: Those are yeah, the uh, and and it's interesting the uh, I've got a, uh, I try to I document all those little little squiggles and stuff. There's some unique ones, and there's ones that you see kind of most all the time. Um, whether it's on the left side of the, as you're looking at the underside of the tank from the front, looking back towards the rear right. of the tank, um, it's often on the left, but I've seen them on the right side and I don't, you, you said your bike was a silver smoke, didn't you? No, say, no, or was no that a, it's orange. It, it's the Daytona. Okay. So I see it most often the red painter signature on Daytona bikes, and I always have been wondering why I don't see that very often on silver smoke bikes. I have seen it, but it's nowhere near as prominent or with consistency as is on a Daytona bike. So I don't know if that's something that those painters who were doing Daytona bikes just decided to do, hmm. but the guy, but the but the people striping the uh, smoke bikes when you know didn't do it as much. I don't know. I have seen it on. I have seen little silver, you know uh spoodles, you know, for paint the striper signatures on smoke bikes, but it's it's relatively rare. Haven't figured that one out, but that's definitely in my uh in the back of my mind to try to get that done.
0: Interesting. And, you know, you mentioned uh social media and some Facebook groups on the R9 DS. Kinda like you, I'm not a big social media guy. I was on Facebook uh a few years ago. That's a- another story. But I do remember making a comment uh, on there on the R90S group. Uh, I posted up some pictures of the signatures uh, after I purchased my bike and was going through it and somebody actually chimed in and I should have taken notes on this before we chatted, but they actually did some research and found the woman's name uh, and initials uh, who did the pinstriping and whose signature uh, I ha- I have on mine, and uh, you mentioned the uh, the squiggle, so to speak, uh, especially with the red pinstripes on the Daytona Orange, that seemed to be the really the most prominent painter, uh, this woman who ever did it. I wish I could remember her name. I, I might have to try to look that up again. The other thing, Mark, go ahead.
1: Well, I was just going to say there's a marvelous video that I've not been able to find on my computer that I have at least a couple of times of uh, tanks, you know, the, when these slash sixes and r 90s were built in the factory back in the day, and they show these women pinstriping these tanks, and it is something of beauty. I mean, these these ladies are so fast at it and so precise, it takes some 10 or 15 seconds to do a stripe on each side of the tank and a a double and a double stripe at that. I mean, it's pretty remarkable.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. I know the video you're talking about, I think, uh, and I think it was a film actually done in France. And I think, French. yeah, and it's got Pink Floyd, uh, Welcome to the Machine as the uh, background music in it. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a really neat uh, bit of film. It really is. Uh, All right. Um, I don't want to – I'm going to ask you some questions here that I know you probably 100% can't answer, which is fine. Uh, But answer them as best as you're able to without sort of going into too much detail here. So I'm prefacing that by saying I'm not wanting to do a forensic audit on your builds. But um, I want to try to get my head around and folks who are tuning in on sort of, A, the hours that go into this, and B, uh, parts costs and things like that. Now, I know, as I mentioned, I found an old eBay listing, uh, I think, for a bike you sold. This might have been in 2018, uh, something like that. And I think you had some photos in the ad that showed parts totals of around eighteen thousand dollars am I misremembering that or uh, is that was that in your ad
1: I'm trying to I don't remember the uh I don't remember the bike on being on eBay I have I think I've only I could be wrong but I think I've only sold one bike on eBay and that was my first one that
0: uh, that had to have been what it was because that's where I found your phone number because it was listed that in works. the uh, in okay. the bottom of the ad but you did, you had some, you know, receipt totals uh, and, sure. and stuff like that. That uh, you, Now, of course, that was how many years ago? Um, yeah. Quite some time ago. So <clears throat> how do I ask the question? I mean, what can you give a yeah, ballpark I just, I just, of what a, a typical yeah. restoration is parts-wise and then just hours-wise? What, what kind of things are we talking about there?
1: That, that's very easy. I keep a detailed record of every bike I build. Um, in terms of hours and cost so um, and they believe it or not it all comes out about the same every time and it really depends the the variation on the total cost of the build comes down to what's the cost of the uh, initial core that i buy that simple
0: yeah that makes Um, sense
1: the more more i pay for a core you know the, the higher it goes it's Now, there is a bit of another dynamic going on is that there's some guy in Germany that works for BMW that his job is to get up every morning. And just like painting the Golden Gate Bridge, he starts at one end of the the max fiche, raises prices, and goes all the way through. (laughs) And when he's done, he starts going back and raising the prices. So every time I place an order with max, it's a very different price. But that's uh, That said, that's the inflationary world we live in. Yeah. I, anyway, yeah, so go ahead.
0: Uh, is there a more egregious example of that happening that you can think of?
1: Sure. I'll just tell you, and when you have to buy a fairing, when I started buying fairings from them, they were $289, and now they're $498. Wow. And it's the same?
0: It's the same?
1: Same exact thing. Yeah. Same exact fairing. The The windscreens. That I bought it used to be 119 dollars the clear windscreens now they're 168 dollars um now yeah, it's just every single part but you know that's fine and and it's probably because I've I've often wondered a lot of these parts that Max has in their inventory or BMW is selling they appear to be NOS and they're not they're just stuff that they had a ton of parts on that until People like me started doing a lot of restorations. These parts rel- sat relatively dormant because a lot of people weren't taking their airheads into uh, dealerships to get them get them uh, worked on, and and you see that by the number, the lack of master technicians that are in BMW motorcycle shops anymore. They're just so. We have a shop here, uh, a local shop here. When somebody comes in with an airhead that needs work, they tell them they don't have anybody to come work on them and they give them my phone number. <laughs> so a lot of these you know a lot of these parts that they have they' they just didn't get a lot they didn't get a lot of use up until recently, and they were always in stock and I think they're basically n o s parts and the reason I say that is I needed a fork uh a fork slider for a seventy four and when i uh, on the on the right side. And when I received the part, the casting date in the fork slider was a seventy-four casting date. Wow. Yeah. So, so back to your question on—I mean, I don't have any issues coming up. Every every R ninety S a seventy-five or a seventy-six takes around three hundred to three hundred and twenty hours. Okay. To do start to finish, and the cost on that will be approximately uh, $15,000 plus the cost of the core that I buy. So that'll typically be into the 18 to $20,000 range and, uh, excluding my time on, in terms of, you know, paying for the time, the labor, uh, you know, so it's the, the price I sell the bikes for usually it just becomes whatever. That's what I get paid for my labor.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: And because it's not, because it's not a business you know i'm not doing it for the money and what's happening is i've been able to fill a niche where a lot of people wanted to get these bikes but didn't you know get a nice rest restored bike but not have to pay an arm and a leg as if they had gone through professional shop that had all kinds of overhead so i've offered a bit of a, a different uh you know dynamic in that
0: so. did you watch uh i'm sure you did When Max did the uh, build from new R90s, um, I I think I remember um, the parts total on that. I don't, for some reason, I have the figure of forty-seven thousand dollars in my head.
1: That's that's about right. I added it up, and that was I came to like forty-eight something.
0: Yeah, Um, and that was gosh, that was going on ten years ago, and I think at the time they did that, of course. You know the, in, you know some of the things you know right off the bat that were different were you know the engine badge you know they didn't have the R90s engine badge it just said BMW and a lot of things like that but if I'm if I'm remembering I mean I think they were they still used uh, they still had a tank you know fenders and all that kind of stuff was still uh, factory parts and you know maybe they had a dozen or so things that they had if that many to outsource. So uh I, I imagine when they when they did that you were watching that with very interested ears and eyes.
1: Yeah, it was it was really fun, you know, watching them go through the bike. They had a, a team on it and everybody seemed happy. Um you know, I it's I I looked at that and said, you know, that's a that's a testimonial to uh BMW Having a, not just Max but BMW having a ton of these parts, just like we were talking about, a lot of these things they they produced a lot of parts. And over the years, as the newer models of BMWs you know came into existence, people stopped riding their airheads and people stopped buying a lot of airhead parts that BMW still had in existence. So the testimonial from Max is that heck, there's still a lot of parts available, and there there have been. On these bikes, it's been uh, it's been wonderful. But as we talked about earlier, you know, it's it's a because a lot of people are going back, and you know, there's a nostalgia effect happening, right? And people are going back and to their roots and and wanting to buy them, and so people are resurrecting their old slash sixes, their R ninety Ss, and now it's putting pressure on the on the uh, supply of these old parts. But it was a it was a great. I think as I recall from that video they said that there were five parts that they couldn't get from inventory. Yeah, that's right. And I and I don't remember what four out of the five were, but I do remember that one of them was the the brake lever on the final drive. It's the thing that is pulled by the brake rod that swivels that, that expands and contracts the brake shoes inside the final drive or inside the hub of the drive. Um it was kind of kind of interesting that and there were a few other parts. Um the badges, I don't recall the badges. The badges are still available from BMW.
0: Yeah, you, you might yeah, maybe you're right. I might I'm maybe I'm misremembering that. Uh I, I remember there was something about the look of the bike uh on the engine yeah. or something else that seemed to be a a little bit different. But um yeah. yeah At, I
1: think you're right. I do recall that. I just don't remember what it was. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it was a it was a beautiful build, um, great looking seventy four that they did. Um, but I think it was a seventy four. Yeah. Uh, but the the end of the day, it doesn't have a it doesn't have a VIN number, so it's sort of a ghost.
0: <laughs> That's you know? right. I never thought about that. I never thought about that. All right, uh, Mark. So I want to ask you a few quick fire questions uh, before we get out of here. These are some things I've been asking all our guests on the on the podcast here. So obviously, aside from the R90s, uh, I'm sure there have been some other BMWs that have caught your attention uh, over the years. Uh, aside from the R90s, can you name three other bikes uh, that you think epitomize uh, that classic Airhead 247 run, uh, what I'm calling the Mount Rushmore uh, of the 247 Airhead?
1: Yeah, I, I would say, I, I think... The next realm of restoration is going to move into the R100s. Uh, that that poor beast just doesn't hasn't gotten its due, um, but it's a wonderful bike. Um, and then as we start to see the uh, price of R90s kind of exceed what people want to pay, you could see that uh, people might gravitate to the R100s. So I've been I've actually have owned a uh, let's see I think I've owned one. R90S. Yes. Typ- I typically like to buy things that are rare. Um, a few years ago, I purchased a 1979 R100S. Um, there were only 104 of them made. Um, I'm looking, I would like to buy a 1980 R100S um, and, and the exclusive sport uh, model, if you're familiar with that.
0: That's the one with the silver paint and the blue kind of funky pinstra or blue stickers.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I- i think that's a gorgeous bike um and they're quite rare i think they're in if you believe the research that's online they're like one of you know they only made 30 of them but uh um
0: well let me say this let me say this now yeah. this this is going to date uh this will be dated but you know whatever when this airs but there i think there was a guy on adventure rider that has one of those for sale
1: oh no kidding yeah, yeah. I'll see,
0: I'll see if the i'll see if the ad's still on there and uh send you a link
1: okay um i've been looking at i would love to own uh a nineteen eighty one two or three uh r one hundred c s they're extraordinarily rare um, and then uh and then going back to nineteen seventy seven uh a classic r one hundred r s you know the 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 all blue Light blue with the uh, the Wyman wheels that had blue stripes around them. That's a really beautiful bike. One year only.
0: It is. Yeah, I had a, uh, I had I had one of those. Uh, it was a CFO model, and it was a not the best restoration somebody had done on it. Uh, it was more of I don't want to even say a restoration. It was kind of a recommissioning, and the paint job left a little bit to be desired, just as far as the quality of it. They got the color right, but. Uh, I had one of those, and then I also had, I did have a 100 rs an early one, a 77, that was a non-CFO, and... Oh,
1: that's 40 millimeters. Yeah,
0: dark. yeah, and this was years ago. It was, you know, not long after I'd gotten out of college, uh, I was still young, and it was a relatively inexpensive bike, and as you know, those paint, those, that was a bike that was red, that had the wire wheels, and, you know, the big uh, carbs and exhaust and all that stuff, the paint on those, uh, faded and it kind of, it looked like a Les Paul sunburst, uh, yes, that's right. you know, <laughs> which, you know, was kind of cool, you know, I mean, it had a, it had its own unique, unique look to it and, you know, I ended up selling that too. So, uh, yeah, I've had a lot of these that, um, you know, especially, you know, 20 years ago or something like that, that, you know i just owned for a, for a little while and and moved on to some other bikes so i have to agree with you the the 77s is a pretty underrated machine as far as i'm concerned all right um, it is. let's uh move on here so as a this is just a general rider question i'm wondering if you've got a a best or worst breakdown or repair story that happened to you on the road
1: well i'll tell you what i, I two things to that i'm 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 not a big rider i don't and i when i ride i put And I'm a putter, you know, but, um, I, uh, twice I've, in fact, one of the bikes that I bought last summer, um, and this will be the best. One of the bikes I bought last summer had a Dyna three electronic ignition on it. And I took it out for a ride, got about five miles out from my home and the bike just died, just shut down. And I'm scratching my head and uh, sat there for about five minutes looking at everything, got gas in the tank. Bike started right up. I went home, took out the electronic ignition, put points in it, and I have not had a problem since. But one of the, one of the most interesting uh, issues I had was the first 1974 R90S I restored, which was the one that came out of Reg Pridmore's shop. Um, it, you know, they had a, aluminum gas caps on them and polished aluminum, and I could not salvage the cap that was on the bike, so I had to buy a restoration piece to that uh, to that cap. And I didn't notice that the cap did not have that little, the, the seal that goes over the tank mouth did not have a little tiny penhole in it to equalize pressure. And I drove the bike around, and... Within probably four or five miles of driving it, the bike just shut down and died. And that
0: can be hard to diagnose.
1: It's very hard to diagnose <laughs> until you op- open the tank to look and see if you have gas and it goes you hear this big sucking sound at the pressure. <laughs> That's right. Literally, literally.
0: Yeah. That happened and, uh, that happened to me on a, a pair a big uh, Paralever Paris, Dakar car I had, uh, a few years back with the big nine gallon tank on it. And thankfully I'd heard the stories of that because the same sort of thing happened. I mean, it was just, you know, uh, uh just riding down the road and all of a sudden I died and for no good reason. <clears throat> and thankfully I'd heard the story and that was the first thing I did. I just cracked the gas cap and sure enough, yeah, you hear that big whooshing sound and then pshht, off and on your way.
1: Mm-hmm. Off you go, yeah, yeah. Well, I hadn't heard the story, so I was—I <laughs> I, admit—I had a few beads of sweat before I figured it out. I can imagine. But
0: I can imagine. I, I
1: do. I, I do expect that at some point in time, I'm going to have a flat tire, which is going to be a drag. Um, but I haven't had that yet. So again, I'm, I'm not a huge rider. I'm, I'm more of a tinkerer type. I, my enjoyment comes from being in the garage. But I do when I'm up north at my home. I do, and that's all I have is an r there, and I. Have some wonderful roads to ride, and I go real slow um, just to take in the scenery. But I've been fortunate not to have any break-ons, and I think part of that, Darren, is that these bikes are just so bulletproof. I mean, if, they're, if you if you spend the time to take care of them, keep them keep them in tune, keep your carburetors clean, keep, you keep the valves adjusted. Um, there's going to be very little going wrong with the motor, and so you're more likely to have an issue with, you know, a tire or something like that, or some kind of odd thing like you know, a plugged gas cap that causes a a vapor lock of some sort.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, Mark, so this might be kind of a difficult question for you to answer. I don't know. Um, I ask this question when I'm interviewing other guys. I talk about the whole BMW 247 run. In this case, this is going to be specific to the three-year, three- to four-year run of the R90s. Uh, how all your experience with this, if you could go back and make one design change on the R90s for the betterment of the bike, uh, for the betterment of the enjoyment for the rider, so to speak, or the mechanic or what have you, uh, what would that be?
1: Well, I would tell you that it would probably be that, that stupid bulb tree inside the instrument cluster. <laughs> okay. You know, I, I, well, yeah, these these bikes were, you know, period correct for the day. And they, it, it's sort of an unfair critique to try to apply what we've learned over many years of time and technology. So, um, you know, could you do, could you make, could you engineer a different swing arm so that it was more stable? Yeah. I mean, could you improve the front brakes on these bikes? Yeah. Um, but that's where we were at the time. But the one of the things, you know, the the illumination of the instrument, especially at night, was you know, forget about it during the day, but especially at night was so poor. I think that's one thing that BMW could have done a better job at to provide better illumination. And that little tiny crazy Mylar copper uh, circuitry that they had that connected the bulb to 12 volts, uh, all the bulbs to 12 volts was. you know, a recipe for disaster because any kind of moisture that got in there, you know, the copper corroded and, and you you lost that channel or that bulb. Yeah. So and that's it. Yeah, you know what I, I and you and you brought up an earlier point of the things that I'm doing that are not stock. I do tend to put a cat dash in these things. Okay. Cat dash.
2: There you
1: go. One of the one of the great inventions. You know, because so, people when they turn, you know, when you sit on a bike, a restored bike, you're seeing two things that are in front of you that really make the experience wonderful, and that is the beautiful paint of the bike, and you've got redone instruments, and when you turn on the switch, you've got bright lights lighting up your little Christmas tree between the speedometer and the tachometer, And, and I think that the cat dash, while it's, you know, the LED lights, while they're not standard, you know, we're not true to the to the core. They really enhance that experience when somebody turns on that switch.
0: Yeah, well, you, you bring up two great points there. Yes, the two things, you know, when you sit on the bike, yes, the paint uh, and then just the, the dash ex, uh, on the R90S yes, and the experience of sitting behind it and the symmetry and all that, uh, it does make it a unique experience. I'll tell you what, though, I'm 100% in the uh, minority when it comes to the cat dash. Now, of course, I can appreciate uh, the upgrade, uh, the sensible uh, rationale behind going to LEDs. I just don't care for, A, I don't like LED lights, and B, if I'm riding at night, I find them to be too bright uh, and a little bit distracting. I had a 100 uh, Mystic uh, that... Um, the, the they were almost magnifying beams uh, for the dash, you know, the turn signals or the high beam or things like that. And I actually would go, get, went in there and just had to dull down the bulbs and paint, put some covers over it or something because I just found it too bright. I know I'm in the minority there. I just don't like the bright lights in my face, especially uh, when I'm at night, dri- driving at night.
1: Well, you're you're absolutely right on that. And the, the difference between you and me on that is, is that I don't ride a bike at night. Yeah. You know, I just, I, I just don't do that. And my guess is that a lot of people are buying my restorations or not riding them at night. I mean, these are, these are bikes that are ridden on Sundays. And, right. You know, they're not with, with one exception. That's a, it's a funny story. If you've got a minute. Yeah. Um, I, I sold a restoration to a world famous barber up in Vancouver, uh, named Farzad Salihi, and he had dreamt as a kid wanting an R90S. He has pictures of himself being in Mexico City, standing out as a young man standing outside of a a dealership in Mexico City that had an R90S in the window, and it was always his dream, and somehow he got hooked up with me. Um, I built him a very beautiful Daytona Orange R90S, and the first weekend that he had it, he put 800 miles on it.
0: <laughs> which, yeah, which seems like, yep. you know, to to a normal rider, you know, that's nothing. But, uh, you know, to most of your other clients, you know, that seems like a lifetime of riding almost.
1: Well, like, right. And so he's probably put four or five thousand miles on it. Now, he owns half a dozen BMW motorcycles, but, um, you know, it's just it. It's it's kind of interesting, but I don't. I think that's an anomaly. Most of the people that that buy these are are casual riders going to shows, um, and 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 it's eye candy in their collection in their garage or their or their you know whatever shop they have, and it's probably rare that they're out riding around at night. Now that said, the uh, bike that I'm about to start, I've made it my mission to try to make as close to 100 point bike as possible and I do have I will be putting a bulb tree back in that bike I have two that are NOS there that you I go. use and I won't have to do that but um you know that'll that'll help me I've ha- I've had to repair bulb trees so many times in the past before Cat dash was out hmm. that that it uh it's just a, a crazy thing where you're removing the Mylar I have uh I have copper foil tape that I have I purchased from China that I can lay down on the tracks, you know, of the circuitry, and it's just a lot of work. And when that cat dash came out, I was like, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. And, you know, I've had a couple slash sixes over the years and some slash sevens. Fortunately, I've not had that go out on me, and that's one of those things I, I do keep an eye out on is, you know... Uh, one of those parts i wouldn't mind stockpiling you know having one or two of those uh that are still functioning uh having those on the on the spare parts shelf uh okay last question uh for you mark uh this is one we ask everybody what oil does mark francois use in his r90s restorations
1: well if i if i tell you crisco is that going to be a problem <laughs> Uh, no, I use, uh, I learned a long time ago from an engine mechanic when I was in the Corvette world that uh, Brad Penn was the the oil that he recommended. And so I've always used Brad Penn uh, with the high zinc in it. That's the
0: brand? Um, I have, I've not heard of that. Pardon me? With the brand again, what's it called?
1: Brad Penn, P E N N.
0: Huh. Okay, I've never heard of that.
1: Yeah, it's uh, they they call it the green oil, like they like they're trying to be a play on uh, environmentally conscious, but it actually it comes out of Pennsylvania and it's a and it is green in color. Hmm. Um, very good, it's what the racers use, uh, but it's really good. I have two two weights of it. I use a thirty weight on a break in for the motor, and then I use twenty fifty on an ongoing basis.
0: And does it have a zinc additive in there or?
1: Yeah, it's basically high zinc oil. You know, okay. contains. Uh, I'm reading it right now. It says contains high levels of zinc and phosphorus. Oh,
0: that's great. You've got you've got a jar of it right in front of you. That's great. Yeah, that's I interesting.
1: The, when you asked, I went to the cabinet. To, to, to <laughs> uh,
0: perfect. Perfect. Well, that's That is one I have not heard of, and you won't be surprised that uh, in all the interviews we've done for this series, I have not gotten the same answer. Twice.
1: Really?
0: No, not at all. Everybody's... Not uh, even,
1: even Castrol? No,
0: no, not at all. Nope. Oh, yeah.
1: Interesting. So... What do you find, uh, what are some of the more interesting oils?
0: Oh, well, uh, let's see. So Rick Jones, uh, who runs Motor, Motor Rod Electric, uh, runs Mobile One Synthetic. And, and an R90S he says fight he says he says fight me if <laughs> that was it. i said what do you run rick he said he said Mobile 1 synthetic fight me uh, and his his <laughs> which is pretty funny he, he's being ju- uh, not being serious but his contention is if uh, you've got a properly sealed engine meaning uh, he, he m- mentioned this in the his podcast you know all of the rear main seals new you've got new push rod seals no oil blow by, all that kind of stuff. It won't, A, it won't leak, uh, as so many people seem to have the experience with. And, B, you don't get the thermal breakdown, uh, volume volumetric breakdown that you do with a conventional oil. So that was his rationale.
1: All that's true. All that's true. It just, you know, it depends on, you know, how much how much you ride. Yeah. You know, and, and how hot you're going to get the bike and yada, yada, yada. It's just that. Um i don't know i've I've always been more of a conventional oil on these old bikes because that's what they you know were used to at the beginning I agree, um, but he's right if you if you if you go if you have all the proper sealing and you do that uh, this is especially true on a transmission there you get the majority of what I've read in terms of pro and con for synthetics is really related to the transmission. It's really hard to argue the rationale for uh, a synthetic and a transmission, but it all comes down to you know, can you keep it? Can, you know, will you introduce a leak or a weep into the into the casing on that?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Nobody wants to get out and you know pull the transmission <laughs> out and get get the input uh, shaft seal out again. Uh, that's you know you only want to do that every you know every twenty or thirty years, I suppose. Uh, all right. Look, Mark, uh, it's been this has been a great conversation uh, so much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah. So much uh, to talk about with the R90S. Um, folks want to get in touch with you. There's a couple ways to do it. Uh, you're on Instagram at R90S doc. That's D.O.C. Uh, for those uh, who are not uh, on social media like me. Uh, not on Facebook or not on Instagram, how can they get in touch with you otherwise?
1: Well, I, my uh, my email, I'll give you my email. Yeah. That is markfrancois, the numeral one, at gmail.com.
0: And that's spelled
1: F-R-A-N-C-O-I-S. Correct. So M-A-R-K-F-R-A-N-C-O-I-S. The numeral one at gmail.com or on Instagram at r 90s doc doc
0: perfect well mark I gotta say uh again it was great visiting with you I've been so impressed uh with what you've done with uh the, with these r 90s over the years it's guys like you uh, that keep the interest up and that sort of I think drive As I mentioned before, drive the hobby, uh, so that'll continue on for years to come. So keep up the good work. And who knows? I may email you one day uh, if if I see if I can't pry a part out of out of your out of your stash. <laughs> All right. Well,
1: you you can try. You have my contact.
0: <laughs> I'll try. All right, buddy.
1: Look. Yeah, thank you so much. It's yeah. been really great. I really enjoyed the time, and and very much. I'm honored that you you thought about me. So I appreciate it.
0: You bet. I'll be in touch and take care. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks again to Mark. Really great visiting with him on one of the most classic and iconic BMW motorcycles ever produced, the R90s. Be sure to check the About section of the podcast for ways to connect with Mark. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our theme music is from Jimbo Mathis. You can find him on the web at therealjimbomathis.com. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.